Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can better develop products that customers love. This episode is sponsored by the Rapid Product Master Experience. That's the RPM Experience. It is the fastest way for product VPs to help their product managers and everyone else associated with product work to increase their performance. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see how it can help you as well. Now, I have a question for you, and that's, how do you figure out what your customers want? And stop and think about it for a moment. Is your product work based on what sales wants or what an executive or other hippo, maybe what your competitor's doing, or maybe you actually have some insights about what your customers' needs are, uh, maybe some other source? While we have constraints, certainly in the work we do, those insights about what our customers need, what, what their wants, are really important for us to develop better products. And to explore getting those customer insights, we are with Mike Mace. He leads market strategy for user testing, which is a firm that helps you experience what your customers experience, getting human insights within just a few hours to help you design and deliver exceptional products. I do like companies that help us with that understanding more about our customers. So it's good to know about these. Mike has a long history in product work as well. A lot of names that was familiar with, I'm familiar with from my background, certainly some of you as well. Spending a decade at Apple, helping Silicon Graphics, SGI, and then contributing to growth at Palm, as well as assisting other organizations to be more successful with their products. And he's going to help us learn how to quickly get customer insights for our product work also. As a reminder, if you want a detailed written summary of everything we talk about, as well as a one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately the key takeaways from our discussion, you'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 385. I hope you go check that out. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's fun to be here. You have this pretty amazing background, which based on my career path, these were some pretty big inflection points going on with technology and the market. Spending that decade at Apple, the Silicon Graphics International, for people that don't know, there was a time that SGI drove what was happening at Hollywood. I was involved in creating custom solutions on them that needed high-end graphics. And then the Palm was this incredible personal, the PDA, the, the, I don't even remember what PDA stands for. Personal Digital Assistant, that makes sense, which was a precursor to tablet sort of thing, something that we could write on and take notes and manage our schedules. And I had a, a Palm Pilot and it was just amazing things. Um, how did you get interested in the product work that goes along with all of these? Throughout my career, I've been associated with product teams and in Apple, most of the time there, even though I was in a variety of roles, I was reporting into the product organization. And I got to see from the start of my career really up close how those decisions were made and the disciplines the company had around that stuff. And uh, so it's just been a natural kind of progression for me that I love that stuff and I stayed really close to it throughout my career. A lot of us set up the product work from all kinds of d different places. Uh, this has certainly been a focus of yours. Speaking of focuses, I, I want our discussion to really help us understand how do we get those better insights about our customers. I think that is the best way to drive the work we're doing. There are other constraints, but we need those insights. And over the course of your career, I would love to hear what sort of things that you've seen tried or that you've tried yourself, maybe things that have worked, haven't worked. Just what are some examples? Sure. Let me frame it a little bit and then I'll give you a specific mm -hmm. story that, that, that kind of illustrates it. So to me, the ultimate thing is not about asking your customers what they want. It's figuring out what they need and what they would like if you did it for them. 
because very often they can't imagine what it is that you that you could do for them. And what they'll do is just give you straight line progressions from whatever they, they have today. Now, that's number one, that's a real obvious thing that a lot of folks say, but it's really hard to put into practice. Number two, you have to be careful that doesn't turn into arrogance. There are lots of failed companies out there that said, I know what the customer needs, and then they do it and it doesn't work at all. So you do have to, you have to hit a balance. But the flip side, if you don't do that, if you're not getting inside their heads, and if you're just following whatever feedback or whatever things they happen to be saying to you, is that you're almost guaranteed not to be able to produce any sort of really market traction on anything new. Mm -hmm. And my favorite example of that was when I worked at Apple. And this was a while back. So this was before you had online research and all that sort of stuff. It was old school, traditional market research. And the company had a ton of money even back then. And it did enormous quantitative surveys with perfect methodology that took multiple quarters to get completed worldwide and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that we researched, which I know about because my team at the time was doing that stuff for the company, um, was just asking customers what features do they want and asking them to stank rank, which things are most important, stuff like that. So we did that over and over. And consistently what came back was the, the things that were most highly ranked were bigger hard drive, more those two things over and over again. That's what they wanted. And so we focused for a long time on, okay, let's make the new Macs have bigger hard drives and and more memory because that's what all the customers are really asking for. Bottom of the list, the things that got the lowest ratings overall was multimedia features. Followed that, did that, executed on it extremely well. Company gradually was dying. Margins were getting squished. Things were not going at all well. Company nearly died in the late 1990s. Steve Jobs comes in and returns to the company after his hiatus from it and says, we're going to work on uh, multimedia features and we're going to build in multimedia features, the bottom ranked stuff in all the quantitative surveys. Because what Steve understood was he didn't need something that was of mediocre interest to 90% of the customers. He needed something that 10% of people would absolutely adore um, because that's what would give you differentiation. So he said, I don't want to hear that research. We're going to focus on this stuff um, that would let people do really great multimedia stuff. And that led to the IMAX. That's what turned the company around. It's, it's what put Apple on the path that it is today was intelligently parsing customer feedback in order to figure out what's a problem that I can solve, which would be compelling to a certain segment of the audience, as opposed to blindly following things that they ask for, which they never know what you can do, so they don't know what to ask for, or trying to follow some sort of overall average, which inevitably makes you mediocre. So it's not that you shouldn't take any customer feedback. It's what you do with it, the way you apply it that really matters, and the strategy that you base on that. And that's just stuck with me all the time. It was an obvious thing to do, and yet at the time, it was completely non-obvious. Yeah, there's an example I've used myself with Apple, which was the uh, creation of the iPod, right? The first yes. iPod. And because Steve Jobs is also one of his famous quotes about don't ask the customer what they want. This gets used all sort of ways. The point for us as product people is not to, we need to be talking to our customer, obviously, but we need to be understanding their actual problem and opportunities and if someone came to me when I was using at the time the real sport MP3 player to put, I think, maybe the 15 songs on it that it would hold, and I, there were a hundred other options in the marketplace that I could have, I could have clearly articulated at least my problems with it. 
Like, it doesn't hold a lot of music. I can basically get a CD of music on it. I guess that's okay. I, I can go out on a run with it, but then I'm always having to put music on it and mess with that. And by the way, that's a big mess. I have to connect it to my computer. And frankly, I get it wrong half the time and I have to do it again. And there, there were problems I was running into that someone could have uncovered just by even observing what I did to use that device. Yeah, I strongly agree. And if people had just asked, you probably would have said, oh, I need more memory capacity or something like that. And one of the things that Apple is awfully good at is observing where do people get stuck or where are their problems, like you were saying about the setup and things like that. When iTunes first came out, man, I'm totally dating myself. But when iTunes first came out, one of the most astonishing things it did was you would install it on your computer and then you would just take a music CD. There used to be these things called CDs. And you would put it in your computer. And iTunes would wake up and say, that's a CD. Would you like me to copy all the music off of it? There was no configuration. There was no, you didn't have to push any buttons. It was automatically watching for it. And it would just aggressively go clom onto any music it could find and suck it into iTunes aggressively. And it was totally different from the sorts of things, the, the machinations you had to do in the past to get stuff off of there. And they thought through what was needed for the overall solution for the customer. And they worked out all the pieces of that to make it super, super easy. So it's a great example. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the core issue, right? It's like, I, I may have found the a wonderful MP3 player for myself, but the big problem was how do I get the music on there? And figuring out how to solve that was an important breakthrough. So understanding these needs, uncovering them somehow is pretty important to us. Now, that was a good example you gave of surveys and maybe getting information that we used inappropriately from that that did help us with the key breakthrough. Being different is you know often better than being better sometimes. Other things that you've seen used in terms of trying to get to customers' needs? I've seen a lot of people try to use proxies where, all right, we're busy. We need to do discovery, but we don't really have time or the ability to get out to regular customers. So let's use some let's use some people we've talked to in the past or let's use friends and family. Or maybe you're in one city and so you just talk to people that you can find in that city and stuff like that. And it's definitely better than nothing. Don't get me any data is, is, is better than just making it up on your own. But when you go to the same people repeatedly, they eventually turn into insiders because they've had conversations with you in the past. Something I saw enormously during COVID was people using social media as a way to get customer feedback. Oh, we can't go out and talk to people, so let's just see what they're saying. Let's do social listening is the phrase that everybody uses. And the problem is voices on social media are self-selected. And furthermore, they're systematically biased because the people who are most active on social media are not average people. They're fanatics on various issues. So you, when you use these proxies, you usually end up over-designing the product. You're designing for the 5% who are the fanatics rather than the core of the market. They're usually willing to put up with a lot more technological problems than other people are. They'll jump through more hoops because they're more enthusiastic. And so you actually will usually end up, if you're using those methods, you will usually end up with something that's off base for a typical customer. And yet, so many of us are doing that all the time these days. That's a very good caution, right? To, to not over rely on what we might find in social media feedback activities. And if I give a refer a um, recommendation to a product or feedback on a product, right? Like on an Amazon review, often it's 
if I had a problem with it. That, that's what would get my attention to go do that. And so there's some bias there as well as hearing maybe more negative things that actually are taking place in the rest of the world. And don't get me wrong. It's good to pay attention to what happens on social media because those people help to set opinions. So you do need to take care of them. You should engage with them really carefully. It's just that they're not a proxy for getting feedback from average customers. Okay. So let's move into how we should do that then. How do we get useful, actionable feedback that we can do something with? And I was particularly interested in your current role at uh, user testing because the, the claim is that we can do this really quickly. Yeah, within a couple hours. Yep. And often when I say that, I'll get, like if I do that in a conversation with a potential customer, I say, oh, we can get your feedback within a couple hours. They'll go, I thought you were going to be honest with me in this conversation. <laughs> and, um, I'm disappointed to, to see what see that you're doing this. And it's like, no, let me explain. This is how it works. So restrain me from doing an ad for user testing. Let me talk in general. Yeah, we, about obviously, we want this to be valuable, right? So, so give us yeah, a process yeah. that we might be able to use so regardless yep. of what tools we're going to. Here's the scoop. And this is what attracted me to the company in the first place, uh, why I joined it. So I grew up in the old world of market research, where when you wanted to learn how people thought, you had to go do focus groups with them, which took months to schedule, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to pay for. You had to fly someplace to do it. You're sitting there late at night eating stale peanuts. It's just, it's a horrible experience and incredibly slow. And it is now possible through technology and through a bunch of companies, not just us, to be able to get video feedback from people to just about anything you want them to respond to within a couple hours because you've got people who have the recording software already installed on their device. You can activate the user-facing camera if you want to see their face. You can activate the backside camera if you want to see a real-world experience like order online and then go pick up a curbside or something like that. You can watch people do that and get results within like a day. And so anything you can show them on a computer screen or any task that you ask them to do that they can record with their smartphone, you can go have them do that stuff. Most people who've heard of user testing think of it as a way to get feedback on like UX stuff, like, oh, here's our new our new shopping cart, and let me see how you interact with that. But in fact, it's a generalized way to get regular people to respond to any prompt you want to give them. Could be a marketing message, could be a product question, could be discovery. When people are talking to their computers, they will open up in very weird, candid ways that they won't actually do with a live interviewer. You get more candor when they're talking to their computer than when two people are talking to each other. Because I'm looking at your face and trying to see, okay, is he nodding? Am I making sense or is he frowning? I better go correct that. And you're doing all that dialogue. When it's just your computer, people will say anything. We get weird stuff like people burst into tears talking to the computer because it's a subject that they're emotional about, or they'll show up in their pajamas, which is a little creepy. It kind of tells you how candid they're being. And you can get this feedback within a few hours. So now the way it is, anytime you've got a mystery about customers, or anytime you're wondering how they would react to a particular decision, or if you want to do a little bit of discovery on something like, what are people thinking today? You can go get that, start it in the morning, go out to lunch, come back from lunch. The stuff will probably be waiting for you. At worst, if it's really hard to recruit, you're talking a couple days. And then you've got video of real people talking about the stuff. So there are huge areas where we all guess on a regular basis because we can't, we're not used to having feedback available. And so we say, okay, let me use my judgment. I don't want to slow down the project, especially for a product manager, right? Everything's the schedule and getting it out there. And 
you cannot slow down the project. It's not just that you don't want to. But the feedback has finally sped up enough that there's really no excuse for making an important decision in the blind. You can get live feedback from your target customers. So you can just validate. Just make your gut decisions better. And once you start thinking about the number of guesses that you make cumulatively in a week and how much risk that introduces to your project, it turns into, why am I doing that? When I have an option to get really fast feedback. And that's the fundamental thing that has me so excited about this field is we don't have to guess anymore. This is a quick break to thank you for listening and to give you 10 hard-earned recommendations that will help you advance as a product manager and be recognized as a product leader. They are based on insights I've learned after working with many product professionals like you in several organizations, helping them advance using my Rapid Product Master Experience, or the RPM Experience. You can apply the first recommendation in just five minutes, and it will change how you think about the work you do and also increase your confidence at the same time. I shared it with a leader at Dell Computers when she asked how they can create a more innovation-oriented culture. I also used it to help a startup founder reframe their value proposition. And a marketing manager applied it when she was interviewing for a product role. Not only did she get the job, she also nearly doubled her salary in the process. All that from just the first recommendation. Now, a lot of people have already downloaded the recommendations, and I don't want you to miss out if you haven't done it yet. They're all in a PDF titled, 10 Changes Product Teams Should Make Now to Consistently Launch Products Customers Love. Easily get it by going to productmasterynow.com slash love, that's L-O-V-E, love, because the recommendations will help you better create products that customers love. Don't get passed by others that are already using the recommendations to advance their career. You deserve to advance too. Go to productmasterynow.com slash love and get the recommendations. Many organizations are using lean type practices, uh, lean startup um, practices, uh, which is different. But the focus here on that minimum viable product, a lot of product people are more, more accustomed to this language of what's our hypothesis? What is it that we need to test? How can we craft yep. an experiment that is cheap and fast to actually get an answer and see if our hypothesis is right or if we need to you know, go down a different path? And that's what we're talking about, a mechanism for being able to do that. Yes, I totally agree. What I want to build on that with is so many of the companies that I talk to assume that, therefore, the best way to, to do that sort of verification is to fail really quickly, like fail fast, you know, and fail iteratively fast until you evolve the right thing. How about not failing in the first place? How do, how do the engineers feel every time you have them do a sprint and the thing that they've done turns out to be wrong and you have to ask them to do it over again? What does that do to their motivation? What does that do to your credibility as a PM? And if instead you can get it 90% right the first time, which is what we're really talking about. You're saving money because you're doing fewer sprints to get to exactly where you need to go to. The engineers are better motivated because you're not asking them to do as much rework. It just makes life in general a lot better. And so you'll still occasionally fail and learn from it and stuff, but it's less failure and it's even faster time to get it really right. Excellent. Very appealing value proposition there. We have this history of work and product where at one point, maybe we just you know, went, went into the walls of the company and secretly worked on developing something for months on end and then brought it to market. And then we'll find out how we did, right? So see what the response is. Yep. 
that's really like playing roulette. It could go either way. And now we're getting a little bit better at trying to do market customer research and understand the needs and test some of those hypotheses. And we've developed prototypes along the way in testing and tools to help us quickly and inexpensively get answers to our hypotheses are really helpful. I'm wondering, can you take us through, and we can come up with an example, or maybe you have a context that you can provide us, how we would actually construct a test and get useful information for it. Glad to. And by the way, one thing I want to just note is you use the word research, which is Mm -hmm. the way everybody always refers to this. I don't want you to think what I'm going to describe as research. Because when people say research, there's this automatic, this whole cascade of baggage that they have in their heads. Slow, expensive, I need a researcher, Mm -hmm. and this is going to be painful and all that sort of stuff. This is really about ultra-fast feed and making it easy for somebody who's not a researcher to be able to collect this sort of stuff safely. Now, if you've got researchers available, wonderful. They can do it even better. If you do it right, you let them go focus on the really complex stuff and you can yourself do the simple things where it's safe for you to go do it. So let me describe what those simple things could be like. One thing that a lot of companies are doing is when you're in the discover phase and you just need to get feedback from customers, you can you have two choices. You can, number one, through our systems and other systems like it, you can very rapidly recruit and schedule and record those live discovery interviews if you want to talk to people live. So usually the turnaround time to set those up is in about a day. So choose my target, choose the demographics, input the time that I'm times that I'm available. You get a list of, okay, these things have been scheduled. You just click the link when you get to it. It launches a video session. It automatically records the video session. Afterwards, you can cut out clips and share with people and all that sort of stuff. So super fast way to arrange your discovery interviews. And with that, it's really easy because you don't even have to figure out how to construct a test. You're just going to be talking to people. So it's the same as doing a live interview. It's just you're getting all the recruiting and scheduling done for you. Plus, it's automatically recorded. Or you can choose to do a, a test, quote unquote, where you've just got a list of questions you want them to respond to. And you're not going to be live because that's the stuff that makes it open up more candidly. Those come back even faster because you don't have to be in the interview sessions with people. They're going to record it themselves and send it back. In that case, you again, choose your demographics. It's a little on-screen sliders and stuff like that. You can add in little screener questions if you need to. And then you just write out the questions that you want them to answer. And it's an interactive SAS thing where you go into it and you're typing out the questions you want them to respond to one after another. And it's pretty straightforward. It's the same sorts of questions that you would that you would be asking them in an interview, but you're just having them do it separately by themselves. And you can choose which of those you you want to do, which of those you feel best about. Like I said, I think you get a little bit more candid stuff when you're actually not online with people. But you it's can do a mix, whatever you want. Right. Yeah. It's it, you'll get a feel for which methodology is best for which sort of things. So there's a little bit of a learning curve, but if you can write out a list of questions, you can figure out how to make that work. And then what I always recommend is then after you've done this up, if you're going to do one of those ones where they're going to answer the questions themselves, do just one of them. Pick one participant and have one person respond. Just in case it turns out some of your questions are unclear, then you watch the video if you need to adjust anything. And then you're off to the race. You don't need to do 50 of these. This is another of the research framing things that people get into. Oh, I need to do a statistically significant sample. Therefore, I'm going to do 50 of these things. Well, that's 50 15-minute interviews that you're going to have to watch on video. You're going to spend a week of your life going through that. 
Um, instead, you do a few, you watch them, you then decide, am I hearing the same repeated stuff back? Is it all converging already? Or if not, you do a few more until you start to hear repeated themes. So it's not about statistical significance. It's the same thing as you do with interviews or focus groups. Do just enough to where you think you've mapped out how the customers think. Because this is really about loading up your brain with the customer's mindset so that you can make good decisions on their behalf. That's To me, that's really what is at the core of discovery. And so you just do a few. Just do little batches until you get to the point where you feel like you're really getting the groove of what they're talking about. And then you're ready to start acting on it. Then beyond that, that's when I talk to product managers, I say that's where to start. Usually because discovery so often gets the short end of the stick in terms of their time available and because it's so foundational to get every, getting everything else. But beyond that, there's all sorts of other things you can do. If you are looking to prioritize between features, there are templates that you can do that to put in. Here are the features that I want you to look at. If you have an argument within the team, oh, you're halfway through development and the engineers get this religious war about whether the button should be green or blue. And I'm not trying to trivialize that. It, it can be mm -hmm. incredibly important. But you know how it is. They can spend a week arguing about that. And and then you, if you're coming in and you just have to choose, you're picking a winner and loser. And so there's all sorts of interpersonal stuff. Or yeah. God help you if a, if a VP comes in and says, I have this great idea on what you should do in the middle of the development project. And you can't tell a VP that they're wrong. That never happens. Yeah. <laughs> never heard of it. And a lot of my product management friends have colorful four-letter word phrases for that sort of situation. So you run a quick user test. You get feedback from the customers. You clip out some video clips. You send them to the VP and say, hey, I loved your idea. That was great. You know what? We checked it out on the customers. I'm sorry. They rejected it. You don't get fired. They can't argue with the customers. You get to keep your job. The project is back on course. Everybody's relatively settled. There are a number of other common scenarios you want to do first-time user experience, especially if you're doing a mobile app where it's like launching a movie. If you don't get good reviews, the first launch of the app, you're done. And so getting feedback on that stuff can be really helpful. When the analytics come back and you're finding, oh, people got to the third screen and what the heck is going on, there are tests you can run about that, like forming a better hypothesis. So that when you go into your A-B testing to fix the problem, maybe your first alternate that you test is going to be the right one instead of having it be the fourth alternate, that sort of stuff. So all the places where the team tends to get stuck or go off course, you can creatively apply customer feedback to those things. And there is a learning curve to doing this sort of stuff. It's not like instantly on the first day you're going to be ready for all of this. But you can start with those discovery things and then branch out to all these other usages over time as you get comfortable with it. And that's what we're seeing a lot of teams doing. Yeah. yeah. You know, given the tools we have available, it, it's relatively easy to you know, contact someone, ask them to take their smartphone out and give us some feedback on something. And now just having a way to put that into a system then that is reliable for us, obviously creates more value for us. Well, and having help on the recruiting. That's the thing. So when it comes to, I'm trying to avoid using the research word. That's just what I think of, right? <laughs> Sorry. To, to, to me, it. No, okay. you know, customer research can be really lightweight. And you yeah. talked about the number yeah. of people. My own experience in this realm, we have actually pretty good research statistical models that tell us how many people we need to talk to. And usually we reach saturation 18 to 20 people. 
And we get really good insights. There's been companies changed by interviewing 12 people and getting new insights. And a lot of my UX kind of practitioner friends, they're happy with six to eight, right? It's like, we find out some insights that we never knew before after, you know, interacting with six to eight people. About other ways to use this too. Like if I'm developing a software products, obviously that seems easy. We can give them a screen, we things. If I'm developing a physical product and I want some feedback, Maybe I can start a first phase with a, a digital representation of that 3D. Also, I'm assuming I can mail things out to people and have them interact with it, make a video of them doing that. You can. That's You need to work with our ProServe team to help you on the logistics, obviously. But yes, that stuff is all doable, and there are a lot of companies that do that with us. It just opens up new doors. One thing that gets in the way of us testing some of those hypotheses is we can't figure out a way of finding the right people quickly. That seems like it's a bigger milestone. And it sounds like you, and there's obviously other companies that do this well, also, they have panels of people that are already available that you can just recruit from. So for B2C, even pretty narrow B2C, it works. And that includes, I'm sorry, it's it's also B2B if if it's a large group. So if you're looking for a particular job role, like individual contributors in a particular job or an industry, that's really easy. If you're looking for even narrowly based consumers, like one customer was looking for people with a particular form of diabetes in the upper Midwest, and we were able to get to that sort of stuff very in a very straightforward way. If you're looking for VP level executives in a small, narrow vertical, they don't hang out as much on these panels. And so then you need some customer recruiting help from our ProServe people, but they can help you get after that. But for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. The other thing you can always do is you can do intercept stuff. So put a you know little hook into your into your site when you get a particular type of person that you're after. Invite them to one of these tests. We can help you do that as well. Yeah, that makes good sense. If we actually have a product in the marketplace that allows us to do that, software works. You know, mobile apps work. Take advantage of, of users already on the system that we can get new insights from as well. Okay, so really good information. What I want listeners to take away is that we do have tools available, even short of using a service. Everyone with smartphones has a tool available that you can tap into and get you know feedback from. And think about how we can incorporate being scrappy in the sense of, of immediately getting some feedback to our questions that we want to answer without just making some assumptions and getting down the road and creating another version of things and then getting feedback from that. So very helpful information for us. We do enjoy innovation quotes around here. And I asked you to bring one for us uh, to share. And if you would share that and also tell us what that means to you. I thought about this one a lot because there's so many quotes that I like. But one that for some reason sticks with me is, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And it turns out that's actually Lewis Carroll. I hadn't realized who it was. I had to look it up when I knew you were going to ask me about it. So I was surprised by the author. I think people sometimes think of that quote as saying, oh, well, if you're not sure, just try anything and then you'll learn. To, to me, actually, I flip it around and it's like, if you don't understand where you're trying to get to, you're not actually going to get there most likely. And so you need to have some insights about where you're trying to go. And the best way to get that insights is from the customers themselves that you're trying to do things for. Yep. You know what the destination is and what it is you're trying to find out. Thank you for sharing that with us. How can people find out more about the work you're doing, about user testing, if they want to, to understand the space better? I suspect you have some resources available for us. You bet. Yeah. I mean, usertesting.com. You can come to the website. There's all sorts of information there. Also, frankly, if anybody um, has specific questions for me, like the stuff that we talked about and they want any details, 
I'm Mike at usertesting.com, M-I-K-E. So I was the first Mike they hired, so I got that vanity address. And I, I do not mind at all getting questions and feedback and stuff, so they're also welcome to reach out to me directly. I appreciate you sharing that, and I'll make sure that the link is in the show notes to make that easy for people to get to as well. Mike, thank you for joining us and sharing information on how we can do a better job understanding our customers. My pleasure. It was really fun. Thanks for your time. And everyone, as a reminder, if you want that one-page action guide to have some immediate takeaways from our conversation, as well as the written show notes of everything we discussed, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 385. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.